Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm Alberto Ligi, your host from London. Please subscribe to the show. Please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Danny Harvey, who is the executive director of Concern Worldwide here in the UK. So it's Concern Worldwide UK. We're going to be looking at the organization and the work they do. They tackle hunger, poverty, they work in 25 countries, and we are going to be focusing a little bit on the management side as well. So they recently had their, what I would call sort of team strategy conference, but I understand the more appropriate name might be an ambition session. They gathered the whole team in the UK and they did a lot of brainstorming and thinking strategically about what the ambitions should be and what they should be doing. So that's going to be the talk for today. We're going to go for about 30 minutes and please enjoy the show. Danny, welcome on to the Do One Better podcast. Thank you very much. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about Concern Worldwide and Concern Worldwide here in the UK? Yeah, so Concern Worldwide is an Irish organization. We started in Ireland in response to the Biafra famine in 1968, and we've grown from there. So we now have sort of head office, support offices in the UK, in the US, South Korea, and um, we're in 23 countries, most of which I guess you'd describe as fragile conflict affected so we're an organization that um, has a really clear mission to contribute to the elimination of extreme poverty. And we're very focused on that. So that dictates, if you like, where we work, both uh, the countries, but also within countries where we're placed, where we do our work and, of course, who we work with. So we would say as a sort of guide that benefits should accrue to the extremely poor. And that's a bit of a mouthful, but what it means is that where we see change happen, we want to see change happen in the lives of the poorest and most vulnerable uh, people in that place. Mm. Mm. Um, and I guess that affects uh, a lot of what we do. So most of our programming is um, around models which we think work particularly well with groups, these groups of people, with extremely poor people. Um, for example, we do graduation, which I know probably your listeners have heard about before from other organizations. We spend a lot of time thinking about it and working on it. It's a very straightforward idea, which is basically around um, extremely poor people are often in a position where their their daily income, they need to work every day in order to put food on the table. And you're trapped very much in this cycle of very chronic poverty, you're very vulnerable to risk. And so graduation gives people a predictable income. Mm -hmm. So they get a cash transfer for a certain amount of time. It can be 18 months, it can be a bit longer in some places. Within that, you get some support. So you'll get some uh, training or support from a coach to, to think of a, a small idea that suits you, that suits the market. We'll do a bit of market research with you. Um, and you will develop that idea into a small business. And every week, your coach calls in on you. And that, that's a really key Excellent. part of it. Because I think when you are in that position, it's really difficult to hold fast. When you're not used to having a regular income, it's quite difficult to focus on keeping your business going and not get just pulled in all sorts of different directions. 
Yeah. And then towards the end, we do uh, another kind of boost. Like it might be something you need for your business, like a pump if you're doing a vegetable garden, or it might be just cash to, as a, like a capital investment. And it works mostly. Mm. So, you know, by the end of around two years, most people will have in effect graduated. And that means that they're in a position where they have a more predictable income and they have uh, the opportunity that that's going to be sustained and increased. And moreover, they will feel more confident. And that's one of the exciting pieces about it, that having the coach and having the opportunity is often the thing that's quite transformative and people feel much more able to make a change in their lives. So that's the sort of development side. And then we're dual mandate. So we also have a, a commitment to humanitarian response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that runs through everything. So we would obviously respond to a major disaster wherever it is if we think we can add value and uh, reduce suffering, save lives. So we would respond globally. But within our countries, then we also plan for response. So even in a country like Zambia, which is the last place I was working with concern before I came to the UK, mm. where people would say nothing much happens, we would have a plan. We would monitor very carefully the the meteorology. So you're looking for indications that maybe you're going to have problems with rainfall or um, flooding or something will happen that will affect people's livelihoods. And you have a sort of backup plan which says, okay, so this is what staff would do what. This is where we could hire more vehicles. This is where we would source whatever you need, tarpaulin seeds. You know, so we're ready always to have that sort of response and protect people's livelihoods as much as possible. Excellent, excellent. Sounds that you have your hands full. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's very satisfying. I mean, in order it, that you can have a very comprehensive way of looking at things, because increasingly, I think, in the places where we're working, you know, development is not linear. It, it, it's caught up in cycles. Mm -hmm. um, people are extremely vulnerable to natural disaster. They're affected by conflict. They have often very weak local systems. So you, you might not have access to good services. You might not have any services. Services might be under-resourced. Mm -hmm. So when you start thinking about how things progress, that's not a linear progression. So it, to be very flexible around the programming is really important. Yeah. And tell me, so you used to be the country director of Concern Worldwide in Zambia. Now you're, you're heading up Concern Worldwide here in the UK. Is there much difference between what I gather would probably be a, a sort of delivery operation uh, in the global south and possibly here in the UK, you're more focused perhaps on the income generation? Yeah, so... It, in terms of what I what I cover is really quite different. So in Zambia, we would have been doing programming and responding to emergencies in a country context. You know, one of my colleagues laughed the other day because I do quite a long, did before I was stuck at home, quite a long commute into work. And they said, of course, you don't think about that because I would normally have done, you know, an eight or nine hour drive just to go on really? a visit. So it is different. What is um, surprisingly similar is the degree of commitment and passion and professionalism that you encounter within Concern, wherever you are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I also hope that I can bring a little bit of um, that knowledge and understanding 
um, to the team here because everybody here is really motivated and works really hard. But it's it is that the 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 work, if you like, um, that we're raising funds for or doing advocacy on, you know, for is is remote. And uh, I think that's really important to be able to 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 have a sense of really what's going on. Sure, sure. And so, as an organization. Uh, the, the two key things that I highlight here are tackling hunger, extreme poverty. Tell me a little bit about your strategic focus uh, as a global organization right now. And then I'd love to delve into this uh, ambition session or strategy conference that you guys had recently. And, um, and we can drill into these little bits and pieces and give the audience a really good insight into your thinking. Yeah. So we're coming up to the end of a strategic planning cycle mm -hmm. so we have i mean but the themes i think will continue really strongly so we, we focus almost exclusively in in fragile conflict affected states and actually we've narrowed that focus progressively over recent years mm -hmm. um, and then obviously humanitarian response so we would be in places like um syria and lebanon working with refugees um and idps Mm -hmm. So um, our focus globally is around tackling hunger and, and looking at um, nutrition within that as well. It's on conflict, um, so building conflict sensitivity in, but also working in, in places that are affected by conflict. And it's now going to be increasingly on climate change. Mm. Um, so those would be our global focus. Um, within the UK, then, we are... Um, a subsidiary so we we support with fundraising we do a lot of work around policy campaigns raising awareness trying to create an understanding of what's needed what works mm -hmm. um where investments might best pay off sort of bringing together learning and understanding so we had over the last couple of months, a couple of days where we looked at our ambition as a UK office. I'm new. There's a couple of other senior managers. So how long how long have you been in the uh, running the UK? Since the middle of November. Okay, so fairly new and a very tempestuous six months. Do you know when I arrived? I thought, well, you know, Brexit would be a challenge. Mm. Um, Little did you know. I like a challenge. Little did I know that we would be involved in this. And so this we did. Yeah, so in the UK, we thought, okay, so in terms of contributing to this this broad uh, piece of work globally, wh where do we fit in? What can we do? So we convened a, an ambition session. Mm. We were a little nervous. I was very nervous. How did it come about? What what did you guys do? You, is it part of your normal strategic planning every year to have an ambition session or was this a new uh, endeavor? It was a new endeavor. And I think it was to do with the fact that I was new um, the global strategic planning process had gone quiet for a couple of months while we coped with uh, the COVID. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, okay, it's time to start that again. And we wanted to work out our contribution. Great. I mean, we will then do strategic planning later in the year, but this was really like a piece of forward thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and I was super nervous because I, I am not a virtual person normally. I like a flip chart and to see people and to be in proximity to people when you're doing this kind of thinking. Yeah. Um, but we convened virtually and it was really amazing. So the first question we asked was, um, what have we learned? What have we learned from the experience of the COVID-19 pandemic that we want to take forward? Mm -hmm. 
And it has been a really tough time for people. It's been tough for everybody, I think. Absolutely. But people, um, the team are super constructive and thoughtful. I mean, there was a lot of nice thinking about how we, we'd come together as a team. There was a lot of thinking about the flattening effect. Mm-hmm. So certainly between our, we have an office in London and Belfast, the virtual move to virtual had flattened us out. You know, the way we work, there was no sort of London has a meeting and Belfast joins. Everything's much flatter. But what was really exciting about that discussion was this idea of greater connectivity. So not just between us, but also into the country programs and, and into actually the work and what was going on. Yeah. So we've had much more deliberate internal communications during the pandemic. And we've seen, you know, that the the office in the UK can be much more strongly connected to the work wherever it happens to be. And we think that's really exciting and something that we really want to push going forward and be and the opportunities then to be much more inclusive um, and diverse are really exciting. So that was one really big thing that came out. And the other thing that we sort of thought about was we're trying to look outwards. Mm-hmm. And we obviously we want to think how mu- how can we have as much impact as possible. But in the light of an economic downturn, which I, I think is inevitable, um, at least in the UK and globally, probably. So we were thinking about increasing impact and we there was a huge amount of enthusiasm for looking at partnerships. So we've already started a piece of work to look at shared value partnerships. Okay. And I know this is getting quite common in the sector, but the idea that a a partnership with private sector can help address, you know, tough development challenges. So whether that's a more sustainable supply chain or whether it's something around better behavior change communication, whether it's something around the problems we face everywhere that, that, that farmers face everywhere around food preservation. What are these kinds of challenges where, uh, a private sector partner might also gain value. So mm-hmm. we were we started talking about that. We're really interested in that. But we also got quite excited thinking about the potential for partnerships in terms of like-minded organisations here in the UK, talking on themes of hunger and nutrition. These aren't in exclusively international development concerns sure, sure, by any sure. means. And also this idea of, well, what do we... What do we what do we know that we can't do? So where can you find partnership where you can, you know, you can bring skills or different ways of thinking into the organization without necessarily having to have everything yourself? And because we're relatively smaller in the UK, we're only 60 people here. Okay. You know, I think that gives us the flexibility to, 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 to look at some of these things and try them out. So that for me was really exciting that out of a period of, a real challenge and and um if we talk about how we're responding to the pandemic overseas that that it, it is a real challenge mm-hmm. but that we were still able to think creatively and think forward um did you get the 60 folks the 60 people into the zoom conference at once no we did two sessions we did a first trial okay where did- i was only brave enough to do 15 Okay. In breakout rooms. And then we went to everybody else. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the sessions, they lasted how long? So the, the, the full-on session? So that... we did, the first one was two, was a whole day, but really split up. I don't think these things work for more than a couple of hours mm. um, at a time. And then the second one, we just did a, a morning. 
Okay. So it's like a four-hour session split into breakout rooms and, and a kind of plenary. I mean, you have to work plenary a bit differently. I think it's hard to get people to speak otherwise. Yeah. How did you get um, – I was going to – that's exactly the question I was going to ask you is how do you get folks to actually speak up? Because a lot of the times, even if you're face-to-face and sitting right next to each other – it's difficult to get somebody to raise their hand or to jump in. Now, eventually things warm up a little bit and people start, you know, and then you, you got to sort of shut down the floodgates, right? Because the, because everybody wants to say something. But initially it's a little bit difficult. How were the dynamics running a, a strategy conference virtually? So I have to not take credit for all of this. We had an external facilitator okay. for the first one. And some of these are her great ideas. But the, the first one was the plenary one. So for sharing the ideas... It was you share and nominate mm-hmm. uh, and the next person. So actually nobody's interrupting anyone else and you get uh, everybody to speak. And then, you know, well, the great thing about it is with these shorter broken sessions, you can consolidate and present back to people um, towards the later in the day. Yeah. Um, and then the same as I think other people are doing questions in chat or, you know, once you get over a certain number of people, you can't see the hands go up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? There's no yeah. hands going up at all. I guess you can just see a little red button or something. But but the breakout rooms are fantastic. So a, a group of five, six people with a, somebody facilitating and maybe someone taking notes, mm-hmm. you can have great conversations in there. And we did cross teams, okay. which is also really, really productive. I think... Which are the main teams? The, what What are the main teams that you have in the organization? So we would have a team that work on fundraising, communications, international program support. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all our institutional funding in the UK. Um, I'm really scared now. I'm going to leave someone out. That's all right. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll stick them in later. Policy and campaign. So that's the sort of advocacy, uh, getting supporters behind actions and, and trying to talk about the things that we think are important externally. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and then a finance and ops, like the support. Vital. Yeah, so I think... Don't forget the finance and ops, folks. Yeah, the, yeah, and I'd be in so much trouble. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think one of the things we found is with the... Um, so the move to remote, you know, I'm sure everyone's been through the same thing. The first couple of months, you're super... You're t- checking in with people all the time. There's lots of teams meetings. There's lots of, you know, how is everyone adjusting and coping? Yeah. And that's worked very well. The downside is you get quite vertical again. Mm -hmm. And actually, this part of the UK ambition sessions and a couple of other things we've organized around flexible working is to try and get that cross-team interaction again. Um, Because that would normally happen more organically in an environment where you see each other. Sure, sure. And so you have to kind of, curate's not the right word, but you have to kind of, I encourage that to happen um, and get that sort of cross-fertilization. Mm-hmm. Now, you're the executive director. You're the executive director. You're running the show here in the UK. You determine what the show is going to look like in 2021. Let's say that there's a vaccine that comes online and does away with COVID-19 overnight. How are your operations here in the UK, organizationally speaking, how would they differ having now all this experience of virtual working, virtual strategy conferences, all of these learnings that you've just highlighted, is the new normal for uh, for your organization going to look different? Ha. Now, 
Um, or are these they, pending decisions that haven't been quite? They're not. We're, we've started the discussion. Mm -hmm. So we've already had some focus groups with staff about flexible and remote working and what that might look like when mm -hmm. we eventually can mm -hmm. have a normal. Um, I imagine that's a lively conversation. Yeah, and surprising. You know, we will end up, I'm sure, in the medium term with a kind of hybrid. Um, okay. I think it's hard to say what. It, you know, it's hard to say how you feel about something because this isn't remote and flexible working. This is, you know, lockdown in your home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Most people in concern felt, at least in the discussions we had, they would like to be with other people for part Absolutely. of the time. Absolutely. So, you know, I think we will end up with a sort of hybrid, but with a much greater degree of flexibility in terms of, you know, when people work, when they have to come into the office. Um, and people managing their output, if you like, rather than their, you know, rather than us managing their time by by making sure everyone's present all the time in an office environment, hmm. it's really exciting. And then the other thing is this change around internal communications, much more deliberate, much more sharing, and then much more expansive. So not within just our team here, but across the organisation. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's really exciting, I think, to be much more joined up in that way. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I know people miss, and I hear this a lot of the times from, from folks like you, is that there's just no way of going up to somebody's desk and saying, can I borrow you for five minutes? Um, you can't just pull somebody aside and have a chit-chat about something. Uh, you know, everything's about scheduling a Zoom conference at 3 o'clock on a Thursday afternoon or... And that spontaneity where a lot of the really creative juices flow sort of sometimes is lacking in our current day-to-day uh, -day reality. Yeah, and we've had that feedback. I mean, people have found ways around it through the little apps, you know, in Skype for Business or Microsoft Teams there's, or using WhatsApp for the chit-chat. Mm -hmm. um, I am now much more likely to pick up the phone or say, have you got two minutes? I just need to take get this by and we just do it virtually great um and but i also think that uh we had a great input from one of our trustees when we were talking about this who who works with an entirely uh, remote team and you know he was telling us that in those cases you you curate those interactions on a regular basis so you mm -hmm. do you have to put those in yeah and your board meetings are happening remotely as well if you've had one already yeah yeah. Maybe that's Q. Q for, for next board meeting post-pandemic, you know, still doing remotely and do away with all the hassle of the logistics of the whole board. There's a there's a compromise, I think, between some and some. Everybody likes to see people. That's yeah. the kind of organization we are anyway. So. Mm -hmm. There is a, not to plug this episode, but I had Bruce Daisley on the show uh, a while back. He used to head up Twitter here in Europe, and he's very much about this... Um, office culture and work-life balance and remote working and various other things. And one of the things he pointed out is that, yeah, even if you do everything remotely, you still crave that human interaction face-to-face. -face. There are certain things that we being the way we are, we want to see people. We want to engage with them. Now, maybe that's not nine to five, five days a week, but certainly I don't think most people would be happy with remote working 100%. Yeah. That would probably be a very lonely existence. Yeah, but it's exactly that change of, of attitude, which is like, I do not need to be in the office to answer my emails. You exactly. know, you, you can be there much more deliberately for these moments um, where you can be creative 
mm-hmm. or have deep discussions or but actually you, you don't have to do that massive commute for for certain bits sure. of your work sure and and Danny, how did you get into all of this so how did you end up being the executive director in the uk i know you came from from being the country director in zambia but how did you get into this whole field and uh, tell us a little bit about your career trajectory i i guess i started with um with an interest really in conservation. I did a master's in tropical agriculture and environmental resource management, which Great. is quite Sounds a mouthful, but it is what it says. Um, and started with concern, in fact, as a volunteer in 1998 in Cambodia. Um, so I was working around uh, agriculture and natural resource management projects. And um, I very quickly realized that uh, obviously people are key. Mm-hmm. That's why I wanted to work in development, uh, thinking around conservation um, and the interaction of people with the environment is key. But I gradually, I guess, started to get more and more involved in gender. I mean, I think very quickly you realize that agriculture isn't as much talking about seeds and and planting spacing and and the sort of technical side of it. It is the human side of it and that women do nearly all the work Mm -hmm. in agriculture, but yet they don't get to choose what they plant. They don't get to sell and keep the profits. Um, When the agriculture extension worker comes, um, at least in those days, it was nearly always a he, and he would nearly always talk to the men. And yet women are there responsible for putting food on the table or um, for getting the kids to school and paying additional school fees. So you start to see this disconnect between the idea of of, of the development work um, and actually looking at gender and inequality more broadly. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I guess I started to get more involved in the gender side of of programs and uh, sort of progressed uh, from Cambodia. I moved to uh, Timor-Leste, where I was for about five years as the country director, again uh, with Concern, um, which was an amazing time. They had just um, got their independence uh, from the Indonesian occupation and it was a very empowered people living in, in, in very difficult circumstances, actually. So that was an amazing time to learn and to be there. Um, and then I, I moved to Aceh in Indonesia uh, for the post-tsunami response. Okay. And then I took a turn and did something completely different. So I, I moved back to concern um i had left at that point and and took on the role of equality advisor which wasn't anything to do with agricultural management anymore yeah um but was about that that sense of trying to i think at the time we needed um to be in a position where i I was basically explaining to people and working with people to understand why gender is important why we need to do analysis in the programs why we need to find ways to promote greater gender equality whether you're looking at i don't know wash and boreholes or agriculture or um social protection i mean there's a gender dimension to everything yeah um so I worked on equality uh, for about five years and towards the end of that was involved with a group of people developing this idea. Um, we call it how concern understands extreme poverty. It's an approach to analysis okay. that, that tries to get a better program design, like something that's more effective 
is more comprehensive, really tries to tackle root causes. So we looked at this idea, you know, very poor people have very few assets. Mm-hmm. You, you may not have land, you may not have tools, you may not have draft power, you may not have the equipment you need for your business, you may not have health, sure. you may not have labor. So houses where you've got a, a female, a woman, a widow with five kids, she's the only person who can work. And they, may, they, they, they are um, the manifestations of poverty. So this is how people are. Mm-hmm. However, there's two things that sort of prevent uh, people moving out of poverty, even if you address the asset issue. One is risk. So often people in, are living in a context or in an environment where a natural disaster, a flood, a drought, ill health, conflict, displacement, it affects them profoundly and, and no matter how many assets you may have to start with that will push that back down again mm-hmm. and the other side is inequality so um it could be gender it could be caste it could be your economic position relative to others it could be a ability a disability so there's many reasons why people are not able to actually access or or benefit from development opportunities so, you know, something comes to a village or a community, you can't be represented because of your gender. This is a, a huge disadvantage. So mm-hmm. we, we developed this analytical framework and then I spent a while doing pieces of work in different countries to try and put it into practice and see if we try to do a thorough analysis with local teams and local partners and with people, if we could design actually better programs. And that then is... Our, I mean, I was part of the team that did it, but that then is our approach. It's been refined a lot, and we have a lot more of a focus on conflict around that sort of risk. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was what I did for a while, and then I moved to Uganda and Excellent. spent time there, and then as country director in Zambia, um, which was my last position, and that was amazing. And, and now you're here. You you must be incredibly bored here then. I guess what it's been a really amazing journey. Like I've worked with such incredible people um, mm-hmm. and I hope that what I bring is a little bit of that experience. So it's been, um, it's been a privilege actually to, to have so much insight into, into so much of what we do. Um, and I hope a little bit doing things like this and, and sort of talking to people, it brings a little bit of that insight into to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about uh, success for the next 10 years. What what are you hoping to achieve? What would that look like? And that dovetails perfectly with the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals for 2030. Yeah, it's a really strange time to look at them. Mm-hmm. So I guess um, we weren't doing very well before. So hunger, we know, has been increasing mm-hmm. in terms of numbers of people. But the estimates now with the COVID-19 pandemic are that hunger will increase massively and poverty will increase for the first time in in around 20 years which is just tragic so we were struggling a bit with the sdgs and now i think we've got to work even harder to to achieve something with them are you feeling optimistic about them i'm very optimistic person i don't know if that's not a good thing but i would always tend towards optimism i mean i really think there's a kind of three bits that I think we could really make some progress on. The first is this idea of build back better and not 
losing some of the things that we've learned mm -hmm. as a result of the COVID-19 response. And, and really, we don't really talk about climate change at the moment, not because we don't care, but because we've been so involved responding to the pandemic. But I think that's got to come back. Yeah. And I think the whole way that we're working and the potential to reduce carbon footprint, you know, that's got to be really considered. And we need to start talking about, um, you know, the mitigation and adaptation again. So that's an important piece. To me, you know, still as the optimist, I think the, the progress we could make around sustainable diets, sustainable food systems, reducing hunger, and giving people access to enough nutritious food so that people can thrive and reach their full potential. I don't think that is out of our reach, but it is really about a concerted effort to, to change that. Yeah. I mean, that's the focus very much of what we do in Concern, but I, you know, obviously that's like a global effort to, to do that. And then gender and inequality, um, of course, you know, is close to my heart. I mean, we've seen some good progress and, some of the global movements, the Me Too uh, and and Black Lives Matter, this intense push, hopefully, to a much more equal society is really positive. Okay. I think with gender, um, it, it there is a lot to do across many aspects. I think part of it still is about transforming the institutions of power, where power sits, so that they're more inclusive it's easier for women to be there it's easier for other underrepresented groups to be there and it's around sort of behaviors it's around numbers as well I think I know uh, you know through direct experience and also from a lot of the work we've done around gender it does help when there is a critical mass mm -hmm. it is hard when you are the only woman um to, to really stand up and, and occupy your space in, in a very male environment. And that's the same across the board. So I think there is that, that real push at that level that needs to happen, yeah. both within our institutions as NGOs, but also in, in, the much more, uh, in the much bigger institutions globally. So I'm hopeful with the gender inequality, with the goal five, but it takes a, a, an effort. It does, it does. What's the key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? Yeah, I guess it was a little bit back to effort, actually. Okay. So, I mean, when the SDGs came in, the, that, that piece around leaving no one behind, and in, increasingly now we talk about putting the first last, was what made them, for me, so exciting. It's something that the MDGs didn't have mm -hmm. and wasn't in the MDG targets. So it was easy to see progress, but actually you could then have a whole chunk of people who were unaffected by that progress. So that's what we've been focusing on um, for years. And, and I think... I guess the takeaway is to say that that is really tough. And I've talked about it a little bit earlier about the fact that progress isn't linear. Yeah. You, you know, in terms of supporting these activities, whether you're an institutional donor or through philanthropy or an institution, you need to be flexible. You need to think in long time frames. You need to build in, I mean, increasingly we're looking at things like contingency funds and adaptive management. So you have the ability to say, well, this is happening. Let's let's do a cash transfer to protect livelihoods now. 
And that will mean that you don't sort of get a setback for everything that you've gained. So I think the idea of of flexible long time frames, non-linear programming is really important. But I think that's quite difficult for people to to grasp because everybody likes an innovation that you know you can pilot sure. very quickly and you know something very quick happens and I actually don't think that's the kind of things that need to happen so that I guess is the takeaway it's not straightforward but it's really worth it in the end excellent Danny Harvey executive director of Concern Worldwide in the UK thank you so much for joining us in the do one better podcast thank you thanks so much for having me on Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. <music>